Welcome, I am Jennifer Stark, and co-hosting, as always, is John Carney. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Pareto Podcast episode 18, where we are talking to James Fielder, who is a senior data engineer at Cox Automotive UK. Hello. He has a master's... Hello. <laughs> he has a master's in applied maths from the University of Manchester, and a bachelor's in maths from Durham University. James is also an organizer of Manchester Lambda Lounge, where they often have events on functional programming, type systems, and language design. James, do you have anything to add to that? Um, not, not especially. I suppose um, as we go through this, we can talk about bits and bobs of that. Um, I'll certainly be shouting out Lambda Lounge, but we'll, we'll come to that, I'm sure. But no, that sounds pretty, pretty accurate to me. Awesome. And so for our listeners who don't know, what does Cox Automotive so, so Cox Automotive, um, Cox themselves are a, a US firm who have been going for quite a long time. I think over a hundred years for the kind of the biggest parent of the parent. It's all kind of nested within each other. But Cox Automotive are the automotive arm of Cox Enterprises, and then Cox Automotive UK are the UK division of Cox Automotive. They're an enormous company. It's kind of how this thing is, and they work in kind of the used vehicle space which really means that they do car auctions, they do, I think they do things like valeting, they do online sales, uh, they now have a business that refurbishes cars and all sorts of things like that. So anything in that kind of used car space, they're probably doing it. Um, and then, you know, I, I, as part of that work on our data team in the UK, which is, is quite small, there's only about nine of us. Is there nine of us? Yes, there's nine of us. Um, and we do everything that you could imagine data being in a business like that. So uh, helping price vehicles, managing data. We're looking at the moment at how do we get data in safely and all those kind of questions. So yeah, that, that kind of stuff. Wow, quite so quite a nested company. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Um, yeah, it, it's it's. I have no idea what the what like the org tree looks like from me to the person who's <laughs> at the very top. I imagine there's about oh fifty God. people or something. Um, it's quite a lot. Yeah, um, and what else are you involved in uh, that you would like to give a shout out to? Um, I mean, other than Lambda Lounge, which is is obviously my big thing. Um, I think that's really it. You know, I'm I'm I've been a an interesting interested in kind of the functional programming and data stuff for a long time i kind of glad i've got a career in it and you know i'm glad that i'm glad that i get to both do it and run an event doing it and and talk to people like you as well definitely yeah great hey well thanks for joining us james <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah thanks we'll call it there thanks yeah it was yeah. really good we've, we've had so many really interesting conversations in the in the pub like after meetup very um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so many great conversations. So it's really great to have you on. Yeah, thank you. Um, and talk about this in a more, um, I guess, official capacity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the most interesting things is, as a data engineer, um, you've got quite a data science background. You know, yeah. Coming from a maths, <laughs> um, a maths background. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think you know I, I'm one of these people who I, I when I actually started my career. I, I kind of did want to be a data scientist out of the out of the gate, but at the time, um, a lot of data science roles. So I was kind of looking like I don't know, just after after 2010, 2013, that kind of time. Um, and a lot of data science roles were like, oh, um, you need to have a PhD. And I didn't really want to go and do a PhD. I kind of got to the end of doing academia, and so I ended up kind of going into software engineering. Um, without really any data stuff at the start. So, I mean, I started out kind of working on like a Windows application in C++, mm. um, which was very boring and I don't want to do it again. Um, and then I've <laughs> kind of moved my way over into data, well, data engineering, not quite data science. I don't think I'm ever quite going to get there because it turns out that I quite like the software aspect of it as well. And I quite mm. like being a programmer and 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 writing code and, and you know, I get excited about DevOps and, and you know, getting your unit tests right and how things are structured and stuff like that. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like I kind of 
moved my way over into the things that um that I was interested in anyway just by by kind of being there doing it and just hopping around and getting closer to it definitely well that sounds like the ideal outcome really figuring out <laughs> yeah. what you wanted even though you didn't know that 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 was a thing in the first place oh no absolutely yeah like when i i think when i started my career i wasn't even aware of the fact that data engineering was a role i mean actually even back then i feel like it was still very much emerging right i mean hmm. data engineering is in many ways even a newer discipline than the data science in a lot of ways and i think this yeah i'd agree with that yeah, yeah. The, the the shape of that role is something that is still still really emerging and i mean i i really like that position i feel like it's where i'm kind of best utilized so yeah absolutely i mean on that one of the things that um a lot of people say around the data science area is it's evolving into multiple different um different roles in and of itself do you see similar things happening with data engineering yeah definitely i mean i think that you know that there's 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 a whole bunch of different roles that are there i mean sort of pure like spark engineers for example there's people who just do apache spark and nothing else mm. um there's people who probably spend most of their time actually doing like cloud architecture and and devops and that kind of thing getting stuff running in the cloud the, there's data engineers who are probably just working on tools in things like python um I think it's a very broad heading. It really, it encapsulates, you know, there's some data modeling, there's even some like DBA sort of database management type things in there. There's some DevOps in there. There's an awful lot under that heading really of kind of how do we take data science from, you know, from someone's laptop into a notebook and then eventually onto the cloud and into production. And, hmm. you know, the data engineer is the person who's kind of there to to hopefully you know, help the data scientists get that right and, and make the software robust and maintainable and all those kind of things. All the important stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, years ago there was discussion around the, the title data science and what that even means. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time, um, so for me, I think I first became aware of, of data science as a, as a thing back in maybe 2013 um, or 14. And, um, yeah, it was, it was described as a term that was a, a, a catch-all term. So that they were looking for a title that wasn't defined. It was undefined enough that it could mean whatever people wanted to mean. Mm -hmm. It could define a role that, um, uh, that met whatever the company needed it to define. Um, so yeah, I mean, back then it would have, it could have, and even now can include data engineering aspects. Yeah, definitely. The, the, or ML a, or DevOps aspects. Yeah, exactly. I, I think there's like a gradient yeah. between all of these roles, right? I mean, yeah. I think, you know, there's the, the kind of space between data scientist, software engineer, ML engineer, data engineer, all of these things is, is, is there isn't really a, a boundary anywhere. I think it's, if anything, it's mm, yeah. most about perhaps what your focus is. I think that's as far as really I would say, yeah. say that it goes. Or even, or even the size and skill set of the team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you've got a really tiny team, you've probably got people who can do all of those things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and take, take a project from its idea all the way through to productionization. Um, whereas with a bigger team, you can, you can have, you've got space then to have people who specialize in all the various aspects. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, how did you, I mean, for, for me with the science background, I finished my science degrees without knowing any coding at all. Um, obviously it, was, it wasn't math by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, so I did a neuroscience degree and I, I came away with, with no coding experience. Um, so I'm just curious to know how much, I mean, you, you went into straight into a software dev mm -hmm. uh, role out of your math degree programming already. So did you know that? from as a from like uh did you teach yourself programming or was that part of your math um so I, I, in some ways a bit of both i mean i'd always been i'd always been someone who was quite interested in computers and i mean i've been doing stuff like i kind of say that i almost taught myself everything but programming before i started at university so i kind of knew all of like the linuxy stuff so i'm probably like in terms of where i was when i was say 18 i, I was probably like knew all the skills to be kind of a Linux sysadmin person. So I could do all of that stuff. Wow, okay. uh, and cool. I, I just had all this Linux knowledge because I'd spent years doing that kind of a thing, along with bits and bobs of kind of programming knowledge. You know, I could just, I could hack together a little bit of HTML and a little bit of JS because, 
you know, inevitably, if if you're a sort of nerdy kid who's on the internet, then that's the kind of thing you just learn how to do. Um, but then at university, you know, I, I did take some more structured programming um, uh, modules and that kind of a thing. I mean, I think I got to do, I did some Java at university. I did some Python, some MATLAB, and then finally some C++ as part of my master's because that was a bit more focused on kind of applied mathematics and 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 you know, for things like fluid dynamics, for example, a lot of that is written in C++ uh, or, or Fortran. Right. I don't want to touch Fortran, but you know, <laughs> different conversation. Um, but yeah, I'd say that, you know, I, for me, I think a lot of what I did and, and how I got here was that I just pieced together these strange skills, um, especially around, you know, the really funny one is that the Linux skills have been hugely useful throughout my career. And they're the skills that I paid the least money to learn like because i just did you know i just learned them as a nerdy teenager who wanted to run linux on his desktop and you know then decided you know i was gonna like recompile my kernel and run xmonad and all this kind of stuff you know um and that that those have been massively useful and, and really coming useful even today just on 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 how do you do these things right on how do you set servers up and get them running and all that kind of a thing but yeah i suppose a, a strange route towards it definitely so i mean that's how you started what's in your data engineering toolbox now like what kind of things do you do on a daily basis on a regular basis at work yeah so i'd say for me and and for the team that i'm on i mean predominantly i, I write scala a lot and obviously mm. that fits in with the kind of functional programming aspect of this which is another way that i kind of got interested in this kind of thing so scala um along with apache spark obviously we we in terms of almost all of our data programming in product our data processing in production is done with apache spark and then um i kind of have a there's a, a few other things that would be going on so i mean we've got little bits and pieces of java um there's quite a lot of python uh in in the team as well and i, and I help look after some things in python as well uh I can write a little bit of R, but it's not at all my strength. Um, uh, I never really, given that I never went into data science and I never particularly did uh, any statistics type stuff at university, um, R's not particularly in there. And then around that, I also know enough of the web stuff to do what's required there. So I can do a little bit of JavaScript. I've done AngularJS and stuff like that in the past, but predominantly in the data engineering toolbox, yeah, I'd say Scala Spark, um, Docker as well is important. And, and you know, uh, increasingly as, as things becoming more cloud oriented, um, learning how to do things like Terraform or Polymi for infrastructure deployments, um, Ansible for setting up servers, stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I'd say that kind of stuff, definitely. Yeah, that sounds like a lot. It, yeah, <laughs> it is a lot. It's um, definitely a lot. Yeah, very, quite a lot of range uh, in your day-to-day -day there. You've, you've mentioned functional programming uh, quite a few times already. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we're Py, PyData, so Python and you know other open source languages. <laughs> um, yep. And Python is... is Typically, well, it's a um, uh, object-oriented programming language. Um, so, let's talk a little bit about what what is functional versus object-oriented, mm -hmm. um, so that we can all. Because the the cool thing is, Python can also be used in a in a functional way. Yeah. So, let's talk about that. Definitely. You know, I I think that. In a lot of ways now, the, the the lines on this are blurring. So I'd say the definition for functional programming in a lot of ways is a language where functions are first class. That, and what that really means is that you can do things like pass a function as a variable. So you can write a variable that is itself a function. You can pass that into another method. A method can return a function. Um, and then functional languages also typically come with constructs to kind of glue those functions together well. So they'll come with, you know, ways to compose functions or, um, you know, you might you might have things like monads, which, um, well, I don't know if we might not do monads this time. Monads is a big topic, but, you know, all of that stuff is around composition and how you do that kind of a thing. So um, uh, let me just stop you there. What is composition? How, do you, how does one go about composing a function? 
so so composition um is exactly is the same as you know in a mathematical definition it's calling one function after another so if or rather creating a function which is calling one function and then passing the output of that function into the input of another so if you've got an add one function and a function called sort of times by two then if you compose them together in one direction it's the same as adding one and then times in by two and if you compose them together in the different direction it's the same as times in by two and then adding one um and so composition lets you kind of take these small building blocks of functions and chain them together in a way that lets you build up bigger and bigger things and and you know obviously those are simple examples, but it gets much more complicated as you do bigger functional programs, definitely. So so why is that a good thing? Um, typically, the reason that you'll see, I think, is n- number one, it's easier. it can be easier to paralyze these things um, because often, and actually, I, I probably need to slightly step back from that. Often in functional programming languages, we're not, these functions are what's called pure. So... Mm. Pure functional programming is definitely a subset of functional programming, but often it's what people mean when they're talking about functional programming. So in pure functional programming, the idea, even if not ev- it's not always perfect, is that the functions that you write are only a function, or rather they only depend on their inputs. And so if you put the same inputs in, you always get the same outputs. So a big example of that would be, a big example that would break that, for example, is if you have something which talks to a database. So if you have a function which goes off to a database and selects and say goes, oh, um, give me me a row whose ID is 42, then you might pass 42 into that function and it will go and look for it. And at one time, it'll say there is no row with ID 42, but then time will go by and a row with ID 42 will be inserted, you know, as, as, as things are put into the database. And then you'll call that function again with the same arguments, namely 42, and you'll get an an answer. And so that's an impure function because when you giving it the same arguments doesn't always give you the same answer. So functional programming often is about, can we make these functions into a pure function where the same same inputs give you the same output every time? the, re- the thing that's interesting about that is that that then makes it easier to parallelize these things because that computation, if it's only a function of its arguments, can happen anywhere. And that's kind of what something like Spark is aiming you towards in that, you know, while you can read data frames, you kind of pass them down and you can do stuff across the workers and all this kind of stuff and bring them back together. Um, and it's the same across a lot of functional programming. You know, parallelism becomes a lot easier because you're you're in charge of making sure that that state is contained in a way that makes these functions pure. As I say, though, the, the key thing to remember is that that isn't functional programming. That That's definitely a subset of what's possible with functional programming. It's just that often that's what people are referring to. Um, so it's more like uh, making functions idempotent then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Idempotency is is very important for, for, for that. I, I'm pretty sure that idempotency is, is that part of the definition of purity? I think so. Yeah, um, it's definitely one of the things that are important in, in there, definitely. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so definitely when you're running things in the cloud, like, like for the Google Cloud Platform, um, you, that's, you know, it sets up a serverless. You don't have to worry about any of the servers, so you don't know how many workers are going to be doing it, processing the data. And um, yeah, if, some, if one of your workers uh, goes wrong, so it like dies and it recreates it, if it still needs to at that point and does all that for you, you don't want to have to worry about um, losing any part of your mm-hmm. your pipeline or or having data run through. Like if it retries or something, you don't want it to like give a different answer out because then it run it again. Or yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, any of that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. And and this is where functional is so useful, right? Especially, I mean, the the thing I was going to say we that we talked about the OOP thing was that actually there's once there's a kind of gradient between these things right i mean scala which is the language where which apache spark is written in and which i use is actually both object oriented and functional and you can be both if you want to be i mean scala has uh certain warts because of that decision um but you know it's they're not completely in opposition to each other um and certainly object-oriented languages are slowly picking up functional features anyway. So, I mean, you're often seeing in in languages like Java or C-sharp, which are kind of the classic 
enterprise object oriented languages that you'll see a lot of software engineering and big companies being being done in as time moves on they actually pick up more functional features anyway you start seeing them have the ability to pass functions around for example that's now possible in both java and c sharp um or be able to map over things instead of using for loops which is once again that's not really that's not really a the only, it's not kind of the definition of functional programming, but it often comes with it. You know, you'll find these kind of higher order functions like map or flat map, where you pass them a function and then it deals with running it over a collection, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, I think, as I say, I think functional is, there is there is definitely a, a, a gradient of it. And I mean, at one end, you've got languages like Haskell, where all of the side effects, which are these kind of, going out to the world and talking have to be contained and every function has to be pure and all that kind of stuff. And then at the other end, you've got completely non-functional languages, which I suppose will be something like Smalltalk, I guess. That's a really classic object-oriented programming language that kind of started it all out. And then in, in the middle, there's definitely a gradient between those, you know, where you pick up bits and pieces of what are considered to be functional features. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I've heard in relating to the main differences in practical terms with writing OOP v functional is the way that state's managed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, within a, if you write an OOP class, you'll be managing the state within that. But of course, if you write a function, it's kind of like a, a transformation type of thing. That yeah. seems like it would have a huge benefit. Oh, I, from from the fact that you choose to use functional, I assume it has a huge benefit <laughs> relative to um, OOP. especially in the world of data engineering. Yeah, I think so, definitely. I mean, I think there's a reason that things like Spark have been written in Scala. You know, I think it makes these things more more possible. You know, I I think when you often, when you're talking about functional programming uh, in a more formal sense, um, you'll you'll see people talking about wanting to separate data and functions. So in OOP, you have classes and those classes have members within them, which which is data. And then... Within that class, you'll also have methods that act on that data and maybe mutate it. Whereas in a functional language, what you'll often find is that the objects are immutable, so you can't change them. And you'll have objects which contain, or rather data structures that contain data. And then you'll have functions that do stuff to those data structures and create a new one with the change. So, you know, instead of, say, if you've got a class with a name on it and you call set name and it changes the name in that class. What you might have in in a language like Scala or in Haskell is a function which takes a new name, an existing object, and gives you back a new, or rather, well, I should say data structure, actually, a new a new, um, a new name, a current data structure, and gives you back a new data structure which has the name changed, but the old one doesn't go away. And that's, that's immutability, which is another... You know, the very typical hallmark of, of, of functional programming. And yeah, once again, I mean, it, this stuff is useful in the data engineering world because often, you know, it, it, it lends itself towards this kind of pipeline view of creating data. Data is loaded. There's a set of transformations that occur. And at the end, then there's a final set of data, which is written out. Um, and functional programming kind of gives you the tools to create those pipelines and, and stitch them together in a way that is hopefully understandable but also paralyzable and all those kind of a thing um, yeah it's, it's a huge advantage um especially the paralyzable and if you've got a lot of very small unit tests that are composable together sorry a lot of small functions that are composable together you can unit test them and mm. you can be sure there's no um no changes beyond what you intend to do you can be sure they're going to work exactly yeah i mean that that's the other that's the other big thing definitely which is encouraging small functions sort of encourages you to create code which at least in my opinion is much more testable um for sure yeah i think that you know there are there are oop people and and there's a whole there's a whole culture of how you do testing in oop around things like dependency injection and mocking uh mocking of calls and all this kind of thing which I always think it's kind of funny to to look at these things as someone who's who did OOP and then got into more into functional programming because often all of those things in OOP actually are just trying to turn impure functions into pure functions um, so that you can test them easily. Um, particularly for things like mocking and dependency injection, what you're trying to do is take away the kind of 
go and speak to the rest of the world part of the program. So like speak to a database or get a random number or something like that and replace it with something which just deterministically returns a value or a set of values. And then you can test your function in isolation in a small way and basically in a purely functional manner, um, obviously, in, but with all of the kind of headache required to get an OOP language to do that. Cathcart Associates is a technology recruitment company with offices in Leeds, Manchester and Edinburgh, covering all things tech, but with an experienced team focusing on data science in the Northwest. They're good at what they do. They are one of the rare companies that understand what their candidates do. Cathcart sponsor Pilot to Manchester, Pilot to Edinburgh, Mancamel, Scottamel, and are a beating heart in the data community. You can check out their website in the show notes. So, I mean, one of the other big components um, or big differences with uh, with Scala and Java and all that is the how they how they're structured as a language compared to Python. So, if someone mm-hmm. who's relatively new looks at Python and looks at um, and looks at Java or Scala, you're going to see a load of type declarations. Mm-hmm. What is typing, and why okay, should yeah. I care? So right, typing. This is this is a very big subject. <laughs> We're not even going to get close to. I mean, there's people who do, you know, whose whole academic career is around typing. So, like, well, give, you me, can't give me give me five minutes. Yeah, times. yeah. I get. I'll just I'll just I'll just bash that one right out. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, t- <laughs> ty- typing. Obviously, a language like Python has types. So. Python has the concept of something being a string or an integer. And, and yeah, for the very basic, at the very basic level, a type is simply saying what a variable is um, as opposed to what its name is. So, for mm. example, as I say, Python has strings uh, and, and integers, longs, and then more complicated types that do other things. You know, you might have classes and those typically define types as well. Um, and, you know, arrays, lists, all that kind of thing. All of those are types. Um, the interesting question, particularly between something like Python and um, Scala or Java, is the difference between dynamically typed and statically typed. Um, and so in a dynamically typed language, you don't have to particularly declare that a variable is a particular type. You just say this variable is this expression. And then the compiler goes, okay, cool, that's fine. Whereas in a statically typed language, you have to say variable A is an integer. And then at that point, you've defined it. Now, with that said, one thing I will mention is that often, especially as languages become more advanced, you actually get this thing called type inference, which kind of blurs the line a little bit. Um, In Scala in particular, I can write something like, say, var x equals two, and the compiler will just work out, well, okay, two is an integer, so x has to be an integer as well, by virtue of the fact that, you know, there's a quality there. Um, And so there is a blur there, definitely. But I think the real point is that in a statically typed language, there's much more emphasis as well on those types and on pushing information into the type system and utilizing the type system a lot. Um, and you can see like the, the other thing that I find really interesting about this is that you can see both statically typed languages heading in that direction of having not dynamic features, but ways to be more dynamic while coding. And you can also see dynamic languages gaining some of those features. So Python has a kind of what gets called a gradual type system. So you can add types to bits of the program. That's what I think it's called MyPy, right? I believe. Hmm. Um, yeah, there yeah. is one called MyPy, yeah. yeah. Which is a gradual typing system that you can overlay on top of Python. Um, and then I think those what happens is those annotations get taken away at runtime uh, by like a compile step that gets rid of them. Um, it's also similar to, I mean, for web development people, it's it, TypeScript is another language which is similar to that in that it adds gradual types to, to JavaScript. Um, but yeah, you can watch dynamic languages like Python pick up type information and you can watch languages like Scala and, and even Java now has, has um, return type inference so that you can assign without having to say what type it is. So you can watch them all slowly converge on each other anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, the, the interesting thing from the data perspective is that, like, fundamentally, data is at its best when it's typed. At least that's my opinion, which is obviously <laughs> a, very much a data engineer's opinion on the world. But, um, 
you know, I think that typing is incredibly useful and I'm obviously a stickler for things like having schemas for data types. And I like stuff like Avro an awful lot as a data format because it comes with a schema, which is, you know, a schema and types are not the same, but they're still defining what is there and what types those variables are going to have. And so I think, you know, you can watch these things converging anyway, and you can watch, you know, the ecosystem p- picking up bits and bobs from each other, definitely. So Yeah, that's really... Sorry, go ahead, yeah. Jennifer. <laughs> that's really interesting. Um, I guess for the last uh, couple of years, we've been working a lot with schemas, and I've never really thought about typing before, um, or even knew that it existed. I've heard that Python was dynamically typed, um, and, you know, before then, hearing something was typed or not typed, I just thought, well, you type all languages because it's on the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know what it meant. Um, but yeah, I'm typing. Um, so, but yeah, having used schemas a lot in the last couple of years, I'm thinking, and I, I liked, um, this is my entry into appreciating Types, typing. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, is that, you know, when, when you're trying to load data into your, into your new BigQuery table or whatever um, uh, database you're using, and then it objects because it's, it's not the right type. And you're like, oh, then, you, then you're able to like spot your errors, but it's kind of like um, testing as you're, as you're going because it, mm-hmm. your database knows what it's expecting. So, so I think from that perspective, using something like MyPy, which is on my list of things to start using um, for areas like uh, you know, defining what um, input to a function should be. Yep. Uh, and then I think that covers, it doesn't cover everything in your testing suite, obviously, but I think it, it would go, um, well, quite quite a ways into making sure that what a function's receiving is of the right type. Absolutely. Because um, like, you can easily accidentally redefine a variable. Like if you've got two, um, two variables that should be doing different things, but they happen to be named the same thing, mm-hmm. um, and you're, you've picked up the wrong one somehow, or you've changed one by accident, um, then having a type defined in the in the function input can help you spot that much earlier in the process. Yeah. Um, but uh, also, also from like a readability perspective, like if you're reading a function or you know, any code that you've written a while ago or someone else has written, it's much easier to see, to understand better what, what the function is expecting to mm-hmm. get in. Like you, you already know what every input is. You don't have to like follow through the code and figure out where this function is, what this variable is. When this variable is created and therefore what it is, it's already like it's already described in that um, in that in how MyPy shows you the typing. I don't know how to describe it. it doesn't actually set yeah, the typing. I'd it say yeah, the like, annotates it's got, the typing. Annotates or yeah, I'd say it has kind of yeah. like type information. That's typically the, yeah, the, yeah. the 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 term that gets used is like type information. You know, I right, I, I, th- okay. I think the really interesting thing about this is is kind of uh, where where I think that languages like Scala and um, and Python and as well like Clojure as well is another interesting language in this space that has a different set of, of kind of decisions about types. But where all of these languages kind of do well in the data scene is that there is an amount of flexibility in there. I think there's less flexibility in Scala than there is in Python, for example, but then that's why Scala's fallen more in the data engineer camp than in the data scientist camp, for example. But, but often, you know, this stuff is about safety, you know, especially for someone like me who works with data scientists taking their code, as I say, from their laptop to production. For me, the, the, the really powerful thing about types and about schemas and all that is about safety, that I know that what we're, you know, the, the data we're passing in functions is what we expect it to be, that the data we're putting in the database is what we expect it to be. You know, all of that stuff is is about being sure that you've done the thing that you expected that you were going to and that you've actually Absolutely. made the, you know, made the transformation right and all those kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, as I say, there's, there's, there's this, I think that Scala's come from one direction, which is Scala is a strongly typed, statically typed language where, you know, typing is, is very, very, very front and center of what Scala does. Scala has, you know, lots of very advanced things that you can create types for and you can do all sorts of stuff. Um, and then, using things like type inference and that kind of thing you can kind of you know just just sort of twiddle you know play around with the edges a bit make it look a little more dynamic and then python's coming the other way which is with something like mypy you're saying like well we need to go from 
this kind of code, which is almost exploratory. You know, I think that particularly if you've got code in a notebook or something like that, you probably don't want to mess around with having type information everywhere, especially if you're right. just, you know, you're just playing with data, you're kind of selecting stuff, doing a bits and pieces. You don't really want to have types, but then being able to take that and maybe take that step up to it's a bit more concrete. There is type information. Yeah, formalize it. A yeah, bit more. we can check this stuff is important. And, you know, I, th- I think so much of, so much of what I think of for me is about kind of making sure that I provide the data engineers in my team in particular with kind of, the, sorry, the data scientists in my team in particular with almost the tools and the know-how and the understanding to make sort of make that incremental step up from exploratory to actually, you know, something that we will run. I mean, with some of our spark jobs, we run hourly, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're not quite at the kind of like minutely it's, you know, but we, we do, enough of this stuff that we need to be sure that it actually runs and that we're not constantly going to be looking at it and messing with it. And so, you know, I think that's really where the type information and the type information and the typing and all that kind of stuff comes in handy, definitely. It's about yeah. confidence. Um, and it's- definitely. I like that term you use of safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, like BigQuery, for example, doesn't have to have a... a um, type describe mm-hmm. it, it can infer it yep. on import yeah but that to me is just like it's just it just scares me because i think well what if i messed up my import yeah exactly <laughs> what if, yeah i mean i think i think you know the real power of that is that when you're starting out you can just go here's a data set sort out what do you what do you think it is what shape do you believe it is and you can yeah. do that exploratory especially for something like bigquery is incredibly powerful as a service i really like bigquery um yeah but yeah um you know you can just go here's a load of data um figure out what what schema it is um but as you kind of go from that phase of just i I don't even know what's here what are we doing how is this put together what does the shape of this data look like you kind of want to pin it down a bit more and say no 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 we understand now what this looks like and we want to make sure that we don't put data which is you know uh incorrect in and then later have headaches around data quality and data you know you, you the last thing that you want to do is have a production pipeline that afterwards your data scientists still have to do tens of hours of cleaning on like that's oh, that's a failure yeah. if you kind of get to the point where you've you've got a system that can assure yourself of all this stuff and then you don't get any use out of it at least in my opinion definitely yeah and that's it go on I think one of the really uh, powerful things with uh, MyPy that can really help uh, data scientists or anyone really with Python is the interaction between small functions, like you mentioned, uh, and then unit testing. Because one of the benefits of MyPy is it can base. It's not just having the annotations you can write in in the code, which I think on their own are extremely helpful uh, for, for reasons Jennifer alluded to, but you can still run it in an automated manner to say, okay. We need to. We can test that the way the program is structured, the inputs to any possible function, or any possible function call, come from other functions, and the, those inputs for the appropriate type, and all mm-hmm. the transformations that um, you know, as they go through, there's guarantees about how they are, and you can make sure you can run that in, run that in the same way you'd run your, your unit test to make sure it all works. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if anything, it's it's kind of it's a stronger guarantee than your unit tests really because mm. you know your unit tests are i always think that unit tests suffer slightly from programmers typically write their most happy path unit test imaginable you know mm-hmm. like pass a one into your add one function oh it's a two <laughs> great yeah all right job done we're done um whereas <laughs> you know having a compiler actually go well at all of your call sites you have passed an integer in as opposed to accidentally passing a string in is very powerful definitely mm. and and it also i mean the other thing that that's that sort of static typing and strong typing comes with is your your ide and your tools will understand the code better because mm. the you know often the way that ides work is that they'll kind of build a surface level understanding of the code so they build what's called like an abstract syntax tree which is what does this code look like to the computer and to the compiler after one step? So it says, well, there's going to be these variables and they're going to have these names. And if you've got more type information, then it can say, aha, well, this variable's uh, 
type of this and that's a class and that class has these methods on it or it can say something like well this variable is a function so that means that i can safely tell you that we can apply that to a value whose type is this you know all of that stuff gives you it means that your tools are just more intelligent i mean you can see this i think i think the really striking version of this if 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 you ever end up doing it is the difference between writing javascript and writing typescript um I know that some people really don't like TypeScript because they really like the dynamic features of JavaScript. But personally, I think TypeScript's wonderful. If I have to do any web development, it's definitely going to be TypeScript. Um, and it's because you just get the information that, that you know, an editor like, say, Visual Studio Code or whatever, or, or IntelliJ or any of these editors that, that can understand TypeScript can give you, the information that they can give you is just miles ahead once it understands, at least even on a surface level, the types that are go, you know running through the code, what things are supposed to return, all that, that kind of a thing. So, yeah, I mean, types come with come with a lot of useful things once you've paid the penalty to kind of get them in your code because mm. it, it, it is definitely a penalty you know inevitably you're you're going from having more freedom to less by putting types in you know especially in in a language like python where you can really just pass anything to anything if you want and just deal with it and whatever um you are inevitably constraining yourself by adding the type information but in the process hopefully your code is more robust and and you know will actually work when you run it as opposed to just throwing some exception when something is a string and not an integer mm. and easier to debug in that way yeah absolutely you know it's already more robust yeah. yeah well you can start from a position of i've definitely passed the right things into this function as opposed to yeah. like have i passed the right thing into this function <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um and which, which is very important and very powerful definitely yeah sure. We've talked a little bit already about um, how, your, how you interact with data scientists on your team and, and how your work um, helps them. So what does, what is your, how, how do you work with a data scientist? Um, I'm also curious to know like how um, oftentimes data scientists get asked or, or we, we talk to people who work in data and say, well, what's the most common question we get? What's the biggest frustration you get when you work with, working with the stakeholders? So if your stakeholders are data scientists, yep. let's flip it. What, is, what do you get when you're working with, with data scientists? What's your most common issue or question or, or how do you... Yeah. If they're your stakeholders, how do you work with them and how is that uh, different from... So I think... Data? Yeah, I think, I think... I mean, I'm very lucky in that I really... I work a little bit with non-data scientists insofar, you know, obviously I have a manager and we have enterprise other technology people within the business that I have to interact with. But most of my day-to-day -day is kind of working with our data science and, and, and business intelligence team. Um, I'd say, you know, a lot of my role is providing them with tools to do things that are more software-like problems. So, um, you know, an example of that might be uh, recently, we wanted to get some stuff off an F FTPS server. FTPS is a um, very ancient version of SFTP where uh, I, the distinction is annoying and, and I'm not going to go into it, basically, but there is a, a very <laughs> irritating distinction between the two. And so, you know, some of my role might be providing them with the tool that can do that as opposed to them having to kind of go and do that sort of work where it's more of a software problem than a, than a, right. a pure analysis or, or problem or something like that um also you know we we have some we have internal tools we have our own kind of internal framework around spark that adds various bits and bobs on top of spark and and, and adds you know being able to track uh, effectively our framework lets you kind of track data as it moves through a spark job both in terms of the types, but also in terms of dependencies on that data. And it can kind of schedule when things are created and stuff like that. I'm sure we can talk more about that in a minute. And um, so, you know, I look after that tool for them. Um, I'd say, what's the what's the annoyance? They're going to listen to this, so I can't say anything too 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 <laughs> too horrible. Uh, no, they're they're a really good team, actually. Um, I think I think the only annoyance is that. They come to me with lots of different weird, weird and wonderful problems, which is like always the case with data science. That's brilliant. And, you know, yeah. also that that we, I think as a team, we're very, currently we're a team where everything has a spark shaped solution. And I'm trying to take them on a journey where it's like, well, there's there's a continuum of these things, especially, you know, we're, um, we're in we're in Azure uh, at work, 
uh, previous job I was on Google Cloud. They've all got fairly similar kind of uh, options in terms of computation. You know, I'm trying to take them in into this space where we might look at something like serverless functions or, or deploying stuff onto VMs and kind of trying to bring them into that 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 place where we're ready to go. Well, you've got this code. We're going to get it into into the cloud. We're going to get it running, but it doesn't necessarily have to be Spark. Um, but yeah, no, I'm very lucky with my colleagues overall. Um, you know, they, they are, they're very good and they, they mostly are quite independent. They just come to me with like, we need an X shaped thing. And I just go, okay, cool. I'll give you that. I'll see you in a week or whatever. Um, and yeah, no, it's, it's a good interaction. Definitely. And I've a lot of people coming up saying, please, may I have some data? Yeah, yeah, there is there is some of that as well. I think I, I don't deal with that as much as on the, <laughs> can I have some data thing? I mean, uh, yeah, like I, I'm more I'm more the, we need to get some data from something that we don't understand how to get it from. So like they've got patterns they're good at, like, mm. like for example, getting stuff out of like uh, an SQL database is something now that we've got enough tools around that really to, I wouldn't need to be involved with that too much. Um, but it's, yeah, it's when it's, there's this new novel data source can you make it work? That's 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 when things get right. interesting. That sounds pretty much within what I'd expect. Then, um, I mean, at the moment, I've been working on creating data warehouse for work, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably where most engineers would start. Yep, um, definitely. Like, what do, does it exist? And if it does, in what state is it? And do we have all the information from every possible place? Um, so, yeah, I can definitely appreciate that uh, line of work. Um, we've had some. There's one particular part at work that's very, very difficult, very challenging, and there's there's no clear good solution. Mm. So uh, it's something that we're going to be coming back to at some like at some point in the near future. But uh, without going into too much detail, it's it's a requires getting data from different sources that are available at different times. Ooh, that's yeah, that's always a challenge, definitely. Um, yeah, and in different forms mm. as well. So like an API, a CSV, and and some and we can't get around the manual input data either. Ooh, now that, so, that really is a that's a difficult problem that we're we're also facing. I think a lot of people face that problem in the data engineering space, which is uh, some of the data is not in a beautiful like oh it's not just select star from a SQL table or here's an API mm. you call it some of it is yeah. in some pretty awful forms and requires some yeah. more annoying things you know I, I think as well the other the other the other interesting thing that that data engineers do a lot of is what what kind of gets called orchestration which is how do we get this data when do we get it where does it go how do we assure ourselves of the idea that you know um when we've got the data we know it's there and we can update the things downstream of it and and all of that and that's a that's a problem that we're working on quite a lot at the moment internally which is how do we manage metadata like that how do we orchestrate getting these things when especially when they're not just as simple as a spark job starts up selects some stuff out of a thing and then writes it back you know if if it's more ad hoc like that how do we deal with that problem these are all things that yeah i think a lot of a lot of data science teams a lot of data engineering teams have to grapple with because yeah. actually at once you move out of that kind of space of yeah there's just a database and you select the stuff from it once an hour and then you've got it in your own your own copy of it and you do your analysis once you move out of that space and into kind of oh there's these users and they send you spreadsheets and then you need to do something with these spreadsheets and get them an answer back or like this, there's this API, but it's flaky, or you know, all of these kind of problems. You you need in these solutions, which yeah, take you take you into this sort of interesting space. Um, and and yeah, there's lots of really cool things that are coming out there. So I was I was looking recently at a project called um, Dagster, which is quite mm. interesting. So Dagster's quite fascinating actually it sort of fits in nicely with everything we talked about in that dagster's a it's like apache airflow if people have used that but dagster has type information and specifically has mypy annotations in the dag definition so you can type your dag that and your dag is a directed okay. acyclic directed graph, yeah. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> graph. your dag might yeah. go and get stuff and then between those steps, you will have type information as opposed to something like Airflow, where really it's just 
there's a task and then another task and if they line up or not airflow doesn't really know about that and so you know right. that, that that's quite an interesting thing that i, I think is on the way but yeah all of these all of these all of these problems where it's kind of like we're not sure quite what the data looks like or um, the data is going to arrive infrequently and all of that are still still being experimented with and we're still figuring out exactly how we're going to deal with them as well. Oh, good. <laughs> Horsefly is a data science-driven provider of talent analytics solutions with offices in Manchester and Liverpool. They're data scientists code in Python every day. If you love data and have a natural curiosity to dive into a data set, get in touch with Horsefly or reach out to PyData and we can pass you on. Check out their website in the show notes. Without the support of Horsefly Analytics, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. Yeah, I guess that brings us up to the sort of the ops part of mm. the conversation. No? Oh. No, running out of time. <laughs> I think we're running out of time there. Huh? We'll have to come we back to it do... on another day. Gosh, that's said a part two. Yeah, um, I, I, I'll do, and if you want, I can talk a bit more about data up stuff. Um, the other, the yeah, the, there's there's loads of loads of good stuff that you can talk about in this space. I think there's loads of really cool tools on on the way. It's yeah, data engineering is going through this weird renaissance. Like there was another tool, another tool that I was going to mention was was one called um, Marquez or Marquez or something. Uh, it's a metadata management tool. So what it what it does is that you as you're creating artifacts as part of your data pipelines or or, or really anything, um, you can tell Mar- Marquez about right. Well, this data asset's just arrived and this job started. Now that job's finished and this data asset has been created and it kind of manages and and centralizes all of that metadata information about where things are and and what's going on and the data pipelines between them. Um, that's another really interesting. Uh, that was that was open sourced by WeWork, I think, recently. That's another really interesting. Really? Yeah. Um, the, I didn't even know they did any of that. Oh no, oh. yeah, they they apparently have quite a large um, data division, and yeah, a few few people doing some relatively interesting stuff. But yeah, they open sourced it, and it's definitely quite interesting. It's another thing that we might have a go with. We'll see. I don't know. I'm I'm still figuring out how we're going to do some of this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's reassuring to know that other people are having uh, lots of tricky experiences as well. Mm, yeah, 100%. Sure. My experience with uh, data engineering is that it's all tricky problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty true. I mean, it, it's it's a it's it's that it's that it's like all the hard bits of data science mixed with all the hard bits of software engineering uh, <laughs> with yeah with like a dash of DevOps th- thrown in because often what you'll find is that your infrastructure team will go, wait, you want what infrastructure? No, 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 you can't. And then, and then you go, well, no, all right, we'll manage it then, which is like what's gone on with us. We, we manage all of our own cloud infrastructure because we just have to, you know, it's, it's just otherwise, yeah, I don't think they would really understand exactly what we were, what we were aiming for, you know? So it's, it's quite different. Yeah. Yeah. That's bringing back me- traumatic memories. hundred um, <laughs> percent. But as alluded to right in the introduction, uh, one of the spend, one of the things you spend a lot of time on is Lambda Lounge. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is a bastion of the Manchester Meetup community. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, on it's on Eventbrite though, not Meetup, right? So no, well we're, we're experimenting with this at the moment. So um, oh, we're, we're trying out uh, Skiddle. I don't, I don't know. We 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 just we're just gonna we're just gonna sort of. S- swing round Eventbrite and probably end up there in a year's time but uh <laughs> okay. you know um all right it's just because basically for the longest time we had no funding so an Eventbrite uh and meetup cost money and we were like well if we have no funding then it's just you know we, we, it's either we pay for it out of our own pocket or we just try and build ourselves up outside of meetup which we have so right yeah um but yeah no so la- what's the, go ahead yeah, sorry go ahead to, to, um so it's a schedule in my mind is it's a ticketing yes company so are you do you have do you just pay to go like, no no, no. It's, it's they're free tickets no? so okay the way lambda lounge has traditionally worked is i think i mean it's been around for such a long time that um you know i, I can't even remember when we started i think it's something like 2013 i mean it was before wow. i was going um and i, I sort of started organizing being involved with organizing it three or four years ago now um but yeah, we've we've kind of built ourselves up on 
you know, um, posting to mailing lists for one. Like I think things like the Python Northwest mailing list gets a Lambda Lounge email typically. Twitter, uh, we speak on the the um, MCR tech mm. um, uh, Slack community quite often. Uh, and we just kind of build ourselves up that way, you know, through that and through yeah. word of mouth of people saying, oh, there's this is meetup where you can go and talk about weird programming language stuff if you want. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, we've 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 turned ourselves slowly into this. We're quite large actually now. Like we're, we're you know, we get 30, 40 people at some of our, our meetups now, which is, you know, I'm not saying it's like at all the biggest, but it's it's certainly not just a small number of people it's not four people in a room talking about haskell it is sometimes four yeah. people in a room talking about haskell but not every time um yeah but yeah no it, it's uh we, we've kind of built that up o- over the years and now we're obviously with with the unpleasantness that is occurring uh the 2020 unpleasantness that shall not be named um we're <laughs> we're online entirely we've got um a discord server we thought we'd i saw that yeah, I, I, as, it, as usual for us it was like everyone uses slack so we won't um, <laughs> <laughs> um which you know we we thought we'd try something a bit different um but yeah no we're 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 going along i think we do we typically manage to get a meetup most months looking at some interesting aspects of of a functional language or or sometimes math stuff sometimes we do lightning talks from the members you know, all, all sorts of stuff. We we just try and focus on getting interesting content and going from there, really. Um, and yeah, obviously everyone come along. Follow us on Twitter. That's the best way. Uh, at Lambda MCR. That's the best way to to find us if you actually want to see what we're doing. Definitely. Uh, when's your next meetup? Oh, in fact, no, because this will be out. Yeah, I was going to say this is going to be out after. Uh, catch. <laughs> there is one in August, which I can't remember the date of exactly. But we're always we aim to always be the third Monday of the month. Um, So whenever that is in September, I imagine. Uh, I don't have a speaker planned or, well, any of this. There's me and four of the people that organise it. So none of us have a speaker plan yet for September because we're just always (laughs) flying by the seat of our pants, Um, 100%. Um, But no, yeah, I think think we're very proud of what we built up with it. You know, I think Mm. a lot of meetups... Like we, until recently, we had no sponsorship and we've been fiercely, fiercely protective over what the sponsors get and what they can do and all those kind of a thing, because, you know, we can go it without the sponsorship, like the sponsorship useful and nice, but we have built up a community over the years ourselves uh, and we don't need the sponsors. So, you know, we are pretty, we're pretty uh yeah we play hardball definitely with the sponsors they never get your email address um not that not that not that other meetups give them away at least as far as i know but they're definitely never getting it out of lambda lounge 100 percent. yeah definitely definitely yeah we can agree on that um yeah so i think that brings us almost to the end Mm. last question last question jennifer yeah last question which we ask everyone mm-hmm. is uh, who is your who do you admire in the tech community? And it can be the tech community in Manchester particularly or globally or who is it that you think, yeah, they're awesome, they've inspired me. Um, so I, I, I'm going to go for two answers and I'll try and make them quick because I know we're running out of time. So <laughs> in Manchester, um, Claire and Gemma that run Hack 100 and did mm. Hack Manchester and all that, I know recently they rather unfortunately have kind of had to... to uh yeah sort of bring it to a close which is a shame but you know these things happen but yeah both of them do have done incredible work in helping build up the tech community here in Manchester and I think that that's you know it's been huge hack hack Manchester's enormous and well was enormous I'm sure that other things will come in to fill its place but yeah they've both done amazing work um globally you know I'm going to call out um there's an engineer called Lee Haoyoi um, who is a person in the Scala community who I think is, I mean, I think he ties together a lot of the things that we've been talking about in in this nicely in that he writes a bunch of, well, so the nice way of putting it is he writes Scala libraries that have a friendly face. The uh, <laughs> more realistic way of putting that is he writes a bunch of Scala libraries that are just clones of their Python equivalent. Um, <laughs> so he has like a clone effectively of requests from Python and other libraries like that. Um, but obviously, you know, 
Scala is great, but it has the libraries and the ecosystem around it have that some of them are ferociously difficult to get started with. You know, it, it comes with a big functional programming community who want to do like research level functional programming stuff. Whereas Lee Haoyoi's libraries are just very like, I just want to re- get some JSON and pass it, you know, or, or like make a HTTP request. It's, it, they're much more approachable and, you know, something that I've, I have given, you know, to our data scientists, for example, and said, look, it's just like your Python code, but now it's in Scala, um, which is always cool. good. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely him. He's, he does really, really good work. hundred percent. Great. Well, all the things that we've mentioned tonight will be in our show notes, um, including the names um, that we've shouted out tonight mm-hmm. and links to Lambda Lounge and all that kind of stuff. Um, so with that, thank you so much, James. That was an amazing podcast. Yeah, I really enjoyed you. that. Yeah, I had a really good time. I got incredibly worried <laughs> before all this started <laughs> um, because I've never done this before. But yeah, no, it was it was I, I love talking about this stuff. I really do. And, you know, um, any opportunity to do so is fun. And yeah, I'm, I'm very glad. Thank you very much for asking me on. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for sharing your knowledge. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. yeah, we might have to have a second um, uh, podcast number two as well in the future. No, well, yeah, I think definitely data ops, ML ops, DevOps, all that kind of stuff. I'd love to talk about some of that stuff. Definitely. I think that would be really interesting. So one day, one day. Brilliant. All right. Thank you so much. Cool. Bye. Bye.